November of 2015, we are ending it. Uh, and so I'm excited to finish Mark with you. Um, Mark obviously finishes with a bang, and so we get what is maybe one of the most important and most earth-shattering stories in Christianity. We get the reason why we exist. We get the reason why we're here this morning uh, today in Mark. And so lots to be gained from our text this morning. Mark ends his gospel in a very odd and unique way. And so even when we started the gospel of Mark, I was talking with the elders, and we were looking forward to what's going to happen when we finish. How are we going to finish? What are we going to do with the ending there of Mark? And so um, today and next week, you'll get to see what it is exactly that we will do with the ending of Mark. Um, Hopefully you have heard uh, and are aware of the tragedies of the last few days around the world. And so um, in Paris and in Kenya, um, and then sometimes we overlook um, smaller cities and smaller venues just because of the the bigger names. Um, We are mourning with uh, other people in the world. Um, even as our brothers and sisters in Christ meet this morning uh, to worship uh, Christ. And so uh, I would encourage you to keep them in your prayers. And I would encourage you to um, let these events, what happened in Paris, what happened in Kenya, uh, and the world that we kind of live in, um, both globally, were just kind of filled with horror and tragedy after tragedy and tragedy. And then individually, where we have our own ups and downs, and, and each of us in this room are fighting our own battles. Um, I'd like to let that be the context for how we read the ending of Mark's gospel today. Um, Mark's gospel is going to end much differently than all the other gospels end. um, In the sense that he's not going to end on a triumphant note. um, With this sense that everything is easy as a piece of cake from here on out. Um, Jesus died, but yes, now he's resurrected. And um, it's all going to be a walk in the park from here on out. Mark leads us very much with a picture of Christianity where we are sometimes afraid and sometimes confused and sometimes only know what the next step is. And in a world, I think, um, staggering from the atrocities of the last couple of days, um, Mark's ending uh, to his gospel speaks to us uh, as much now uh, as ever. And so if you would read with me um, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, so we're on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Notice they weren't saying, I'm so excited, it's Easter morning, right? Okay, this is a surprise for them. Um, They weren't expecting the resurrection. This is not something that they had planned out in their five-day calendar. Um, This is not something they were hoping for. The cross that kind of ended the whole thing for everybody, right? It was this tragic event until the resurrection. Um, So they're wondering how they're going to get in to um, put some spices on the body uh, to help with the smell um, before the final burial. Um, And entering the tomb, or in looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. In other Gospels, this is called an angel. Mark here, I think, is making a reference. If you remember when Jesus was arrested, a young man in a white robe fled from the um, place where Jesus was arrested and left his white robe. Here he now shows up at Jesus' tomb. Um, We don't know what has happened. We get no backstory here. But somehow this man who had betrayed Jesus earlier has now come through on the other side. Um, And he's wearing the robe again. The robe, symbolically white, the robe of a martyr. The robe that... Um, Jesus would have been wearing this white linen shroud. 
um, and he is the one who's able to proclaim this news. Um, they were alarmed, and he said to them, Don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. It's interesting he puts Peter in the category other than the disciples. Go tell the disciples and Peter. This might be a kind of clue for us, Peter having denied Jesus three times, that he'll be restored back into the fellowship. It might be because temporarily Peter has abandoned his status as a disciple, like Judas, um, by betraying Jesus. So there's right now the disciples and Peter. But they both need to know, okay, he's not here in the tomb anymore. Um, Go tell his disciples and Peter he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. A few comments, real fast. Um, Jesus says um, to the disciples before he dies um, that I'm going to go to Galilee when I resurrect, and I'll meet you there. We'll rendezvous there. All this stuff's going to happen. It's going to get really crazy, okay? And when all the dust starts to settle, meet me in Galilee. Quick geographical kind of update, just so we're all on the same page. Israel is this thin little strip of land, the Sindal Nation, um, going up and down, um, vertical. Galilee is the northern region of Israel. It goes Galilee, Samaria, and then Judea, and in Judea you have Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was crucified. It's a pretty good travel up to Galilee, but you'll remember most of Jesus' ministry happens in Galilee. This is where he spends most of his life. He grows up in Galilee and does most of his kingdom ministry here where he comes and announces the kingdom to city after city, to people group after people group, and he enacts the kingdom. Um, he brings God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And so he had already told the disciples, hey, when everything happens, go meet me in Galilee. Now, when he says that earlier in Mark, it's kind of like a throwaway line. Like, it, it seems odd in the paragraph that it's in, um, and it seems like, you know, if you hadn't known about the resurrection, you would not have a clue what that meant. And the disciples don't pick up on it at all, right? But here he says, look, just like he told you, Go meet him in Galilee. And so the women are given instructions to go tell the disciples and Peter, you've got a travel to make. You're coming to look for him. It's Sunday morning. He's not here. He's already ahead of you. You need to catch up to him. He's in Galilee. And so start heading north. Go travel north. And then look at how it ends here in verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb. They fled. Um, the idea is they're scared. Okay, They peed their pants. Right? Something has gone um, Something's happened here that they were not expecting to happen. Um, This young man giving them these directions. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. We can kind of take those um, words and and, and twist them to make them seem not as scary, right? They were trembling and astonished. Like, oh, it's Easter. Um, These women, though, are not running away from the tomb with like a hop and a skip, like singing an Easter song, right? Um, They're scared to death. Um, And to further uh, emphasize this, you'll see what they they did. They said nothing to anyone. In Greek, it's a double negative. They said nothing to no one. Um, So notice the women disciples who Mark has um, called out repeatedly as more faithful than the male disciples end up at the end of Mark failing just like the other disciples. They were given the task to go and to tell the news, and they go and they tell nobody nothing. Why? Because they're afraid. And Mark ends here in verse 8 with a preposition, the word gar in Greek. Um, And so a more literal translation would be, um, the reason was, the reason, or they were afraid was why, would be how you translate it literally. Um, Now, verse 8 ends the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you have a Bible, and you're an interesting reader, and you're paying attention this morning, you'll be like, 
um, it doesn't end in verse 8, right? I see verse 9, I see verse 10. In fact, it keeps going to verse 20. And then you're thinking to yourself, okay, but now I see brackets around verse 9 and verse 20, and it's bracketed off. And now I'm looking, and there's a footnote, or there's a note above that passage that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Let me explain this to you um, uh, a little bit uh, this morning. Now, the earliest copies we have of Mark all stop after verse 8. Um, 9 through 20 don't appear in history until hundreds of years later. Um, the vocabulary of verses 9 through 20, as well as the style of writing, as well as the content of what's in verses 9 through 20, all don't sound like Mark. It sounds like somebody else at some point in history thought Mark's ending wasn't good enough, and so they added what they thought was a more appropriate ending in verses 9 through 20. Now, this is not a nefarious thing, okay? This is not like an evil person did this. You can read 9 through 20, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty classic resurrection story account, like in the other Gospels. Um, this is not, you know, some evil villain sitting somewhere like, I'm going to add to the Bible, right? It's probably someone in the church who was like, hey, I can make Mark end a little smoother rather than ending on a preposition, right? It's kind of an odd ending. They're afraid, and they weren't telling one because they were afraid. That's why. Uh, and so they added this. Um, now, the earliest Christian um, writers that we have, when they reference Mark, they never reference verses 9 through 20. Um, they always assume it ends in verse 8. And in fact, when you first start seeing 9 through 20 appear in the manuscripts, early Christian leaders um, actually stand up and say, this is not part of the tradition. Um, this has been a later edition. And so, almost all scholars agree that Mark actually ends at verse 8. Now, let me be real careful here, because we're holding, I've got an ESV Bible, and if you've got one off the, the, the underneath you, it's an ESV Bible as well. Um, these are super conservative Bibles, right? This is not some liberal agenda from the media um, to get you to not read some of your Bible, right? These are the most conservative scholars in the world saying, just really shouldn't be a part of Mark. Right? Mark ends at verse 8. Whether we like it or we don't like it, it's just not supposed to be there. You can go look in every Bible you can find. Go to Family Christian this afternoon. Um, I don't think you'll find one Bible without something in there saying this shouldn't be a part of the Gospel of Mark. Um, now, a couple of things. I've had students before ask me, well, then why don't we just take it out? If everyone's so sure, and it really, it's the consensus, right? There's no... Really, no one thinks there was ever a chance 9 through 20 are supposed to be there with Mark. Um, let me just say this. If you've ever been a part of a church, you might appreciate that idea and the fact that it's harder to change things than it is to let things keep going on the same way it's ever been. Um, so this is why you've never seen Mark edited, okay? Um, once it gets passed down to us in this form, it's a lot harder and takes a lot more effort to actually take stuff out of the Bible than just to put a nice little bracket in and explain to your readers hey, we don't think this is actually there. Um, this should be a lesson to us. The Bible is not as neat as we think it is, okay? It didn't fall down from the sky out of heaven one day, and then, ah, here's my word for you. <laughs> it's written over time, collected over time. Um, we have more instances than just this one in Mark where we think, hey, this actually wasn't a part of the Bible, but it's in our Bibles. And again, this is not like, the Democrats didn't make this Bible, right? Like, this is not the liberal. These are very conservative scholars. Um, 
So John 8 is a classic example. The story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery or the men caught holding stones. Um, this classic example, not there in John's gospel. No one thinks it was there. But it doesn't hurt the story. It was added in. It seems like it could have been a part of the story. All we know is that John didn't put it in there, right? Does that mean it didn't happen? No. Does that mean it's not a good story for us to learn from? No. Um, and so with places like this in the Bible, including the end of Mark here, um, there's stuff for us to learn from it, okay? And so next week, Michelle's going to be preaching. She's going to actually preach the longer ending of Mark, okay? So she's going to preach through, because there's something to be said. As Christians, we read the Bible canonically, which means we read the Bible as it's been given to us. And we've been given a long version of Mark, right? Um, and so there's, there's something to be learned from this longer version. Um, now, when you take out the longer version, you don't lose much, uh, except for a reference to snake handling, which most people are okay with. Um, losing that reference to snake handling. I'm sure Michelle will talk about that next week. Um, but it does change how you interpret the book of Mark. And so let me put my cards on the table. I'm going to interpret Mark as if it ended after verse 8. Okay? As if Mark on purpose ended with the disciples in fear, not telling anybody, and running away. And no resurrected Christ. Do we meet him? Do we see him? No. Are people happy? Are people doing the Easter dance? No. They're confused. They're scared. And all they have are directions. Go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. Either, um, so, so some scholars are convinced that there is a longer version to Mark, that Mark didn't end in verse 8, but we lost it. So maybe the very first time it was written, the last page got torn off or something like that. Which is possible, but there's no way to prove that or discover that or anything like that. Um, they're just convinced he wouldn't have ended so clumsily or so awkwardly. Um, others, though, think perhaps he's actually doing something. Um, maybe instead of this being very clumsy of an ending, this is a very subtle and sophisticated ending. Um, Mark seems to end his gospel leaving it open-ended to you and I, as if the story continues on, even to this day, as if what happens next in the story will be determined by how the readers listeners respond will we follow jesus ahead to where he's gone will we tell the story you know the gospel's written they tell nobody nothing um it's written in a way in which we wouldn't have the gospel right i mean if they didn't tell anybody we wouldn't end up knowing about it right they had to eventually have told certain people about it um in the other three gospels we have the resurrection story is told in detail and you get a resurrected christ um and it's kind of more triumphant Right? You kind of feel better about yourself afterwards than if Mark just ends here with fear and questioning. Um, you're like, okay, he's resurrected, he's given instructions, things are tidy, things are nice, and things are neat. Um, perhaps, though, Mark's gospel realizes that faith in Christ and following after him is not something necessarily where our lives are always nice and neat. It's not something where we're always able to sit next to the resurrected Christ, holding his hand, looking at his scars, saying, look, we've got proof. Look, we have no questions. Look, everything seems perfect. Instead, in Mark, the disciples end similarly to where they began. The story kind of comes full circle. Jesus shows up in Galilee, and he goes to some strangers and says, follow me. And they say, okay. And they're a little afraid, and they're confused, they don't know exactly what it means. And it ends with Jesus, the crucified Jesus, 
somehow still on the road, and him saying, hey, come follow me. Come meet me in Galilee. And there's ambiguity. There's open-endedness. What's going to happen when you go to Galilee? Are they going to go to Galilee? Are they going to meet him there? Um, I think there is a lot of beauty in Mark's ending. Now, the empty tomb, okay? We get the empty tomb. We don't get the resurrected Jesus in Mark, um, at least in the shorter ending. We do get the empty tomb. It's important to realize, though, the empty tomb is not an answer to Christians. Um, the empty tomb is just the first part of a problem, which is where did Jesus go, right? What happened to the body? The empty tomb does not guarantee a resurrection. Does that make sense? The empty tomb just guarantees that the tomb was empty. Something happened to the body. It was taken somewhere else. Someone stole it, etc., etc. All things the Romans spent lots of time thinking about when they were trying to quash this Christianity movement. Um, Christians don't believe in the empty tomb. Christians believe in the living Christ. And what the empty tomb does for us theologically um, is it secures for us the truth that Jesus' body is not there in the tomb anymore. Um, we know his body wasn't stolen, it wasn't moved. Um, Jesus actually was living again. Now, we have all kinds of ideas about what that might mean, what the resurrection might mean, and what um, has happened to our sins, and what, what it means about our afterlife, and, and all of these things. But let's be clear, the first thing this means in the text is that Jesus is still on the move. Right? He started this kingdom ministry. He's gone around preaching. He's gathered followers. He said God's doing something in the world and you need to be a part of it. And then he's killed. And by all signs, that means this movement's over. Disciples are done. Everyone's done. They're not going, yes, he died, just like was the plan. Let's just wait it out three days. Just like every other Jewish Messiah in the first century, and there are multiple of them, he was crucified and the movement ended. The only reason, I mean, it's really spectacular historically, you know who Jesus of Nazareth is. Because he's a weird Jew from the first century. Who believes some really weird things about the world. And there were a lot of really weird Jews in the first century. Who believed some really weird things about the world. Jesus was not the only one who thought he was the Messiah. Jesus was not the only one who did miracles. Jesus was not the only one who gained a following. In fact, there are other Jewish would-be Messiahs in the first century who had more of a following. They actually had the Pharisees and scribes and Jewish leaders behind them. They had support from the religious establishment. But all these people get crucified, and you don't know their names. I, I promise you don't know their names. I've, I've tested it. You could go out into town square and ask people. None of them have heard their name. Why? It was a weird Jewish man who died, right, with these weird beliefs. But everybody knows about Jesus. The reason is, so these Christians have claimed and have lived out this claim. He's still alive. He didn't stay dead. Like he's still on the move. The mission, the ministry that he started, whatever it was, and however we interpret it, it's still going on. Now, this doesn't solve all the answers, right? The Roman Empire is still the Roman Empire, and there's still all this evil in the world. Things aren't tidy and neat. But one thing is true he's still around, he's moving. And he's doing things. And the movement's not over. And our story in the movement's not over. The resurrection is the tenacity of God's love. It's the unconquerableness of his desire for life to defeat death. Jesus is crucified. Nowhere in the scriptures are we narrated about how the resurrection happens. We get a story about what the resurrection is like. We are told that the Father grabs him from death. He raises the Son to life. God reverses the sentence. You're a failed king. He says no. And he comes back through the other side of death. And his ministry and mission continue on. 
Jesus is living Christ who goes ahead to Galilee, where we know eventually they'll get the instructions, the Great Commission, right, to go out into all the world. Jesus is still for you and I, the living Christ. So often we, I think, act as if Jesus is more a dead martyr figure instead of someone who's on the move, who's ahead of us, who we need to catch up to, who's living and active, who has desires, whose mission is still as alive today as it was 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago. If you think about, so this is Sunday morning. This Sunday morning where Jesus resurrects so shaped the early Christians um, that these Jewish people who worship on Saturday, on the Sabbath, um, and the early Christians are still part of Judaism, they're a Jewish sect, um, eventually, very quickly, um, decided to stop worshiping on Saturday and start worshiping on Sunday. This is, again, a historical fact. I don't think we necessarily always appreciate the depth of which, um, the, the, the meaning that, that has behind it. Um, you and I are meeting on a morning on Sunday, not on accident. Not because the American government decided this would be the weekend. And it seemed like it would be better to do it at the end of the weekend than the beginning, or at the beginning of the work week, or whatever it is. Um, it's not a part of the American Judeo-Christian complex of traditions that comes down to us. We're meeting on a Sunday because from the very beginning, the earliest Christians said, hey, every day that this happened, let's remember it. And every Sunday is a miniature Easter. Now, I was reading a, a church book, church leadership growth book the other day. They're talking about adding new services. And so you get to larger churches, you get service on Saturday and, 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 and Friday and services during the week and things of that nature and it just hit me and occurred to me right um you know what's the theological significance of having a worship service on a saturday what what do you lose if you do that i mean is there anything that you're giving up there i'm not gonna wholesale condemn worship services on the other day right knock on wood we'll have a saturday service in like three weeks um, but right there's a this isn't just a random day we picked right as opposed to other days, which might work better for our schedules and might work better for our work environments and all these kind of things. Um, the way I like to, to imagine it out, and the best way I've, I've come across doing this, to get the significance of this one day in history and then how it continues to influence our lives, think about gravity. Um, so um, for a long time, human beings have tried to understand gravity. Right? You can drop something, it goes down, but why? What's pulling it? What's the weight on it? Those kind of things. Uh, I saw an experiment the other day. They took a water bottle, put holes in it, and you hold it up, and the water pours out of it, right? Because gravity's sucking it down. But theoretically, if you drop the water bottle, it all is going at the same speed now. No water comes out. And so they did this from like three stories up. And sure enough, the whole way down, not one drop of water comes out of the bottle, even though there's holes in it, right? Because it's all being pulled at the same speed now. Very interesting stuff. But why does it happen, and how does it happen? And so different um, physicists at that time have tried to do this. Um, the best model we have now for understanding how it happens is space and time are connected together like a fabric, okay? So imagine we had like a circle table up here, and it was just a rim, okay, and then a fabric stretched over it. And the heaviest objects, or the objects with the most gravitational pull, um, pull down into that fabric. So you take the sun, and say it's like a 10-pound bowling ball, right? And you put it on this fabric, and all of a sudden what? It pulls down. 
And then anything else you put inside, right, on that fabric, if you were to throw another ball, a five-pound ball or a three-pound ball, it's going to do what? It's going to rotate around that sun, around that, the heaviest one, right? Because it's stretched, it's made a dent, right, in the existence of reality. And so this is how we think the Earth and other planets, right, rotate around the sun, right? In some sense, it's so heavy, it's pulled down <coughs> a little bit uh, on the very fabric of existence, and everything else rotates around it. I want one day some computer graphic person to actually do this and so we can see it as a model. I think that this is how Easter works. Follow me here. Jesus resurrects on Sunday. It's the most important day in history. The most important thing that's ever happened. It pulls down gravitationally in the fabric of history. And from the very earliest time, Christians have said everything rotates around this. Our week rotates around this. Our year rotates around this. We have a Christian year. We have a church year. Highlights Easter. Every week highlights Sunday. They have Easter. And then God himself, looking back from eternity, says all of history rotates on this one day. Where one day, my plans will come to fruition. And not just Jesus himself will be resurrected, but all of creation will be made new. All of creation will be brought out of death and into life. And so on this Sunday, everything changes. On this Sunday, we see the, um, the, we see inside, we get a peek inside God's plan for creation. Jesus is called the firstborn of many brothers. He's the first of all those to come. Um, Jesus is the example, not only for you and I, as we receive eternal life through the resurrection, but even creation itself will be resurrected in this sense. Um, Sunday morning is this um, hope that Christians are given, again, that life is stronger than death. God's commitment to life is more powerful um, than the black hole of death. That hope is stronger than fear, that light is stronger than darkness. Um, Again, though, with Mark's gospel... It doesn't necessarily leave us with a nice and tidy, perfect faith. And I think if we're honest, it's the experience of a lot of us. So the other Gospels, <coughs> they narrate what happens after the resurrection. And we think Mark's weird for not doing that. But if you go and read the other Gospels, when they talk about what happens after the resurrection, you'll find very quickly they don't seem to know what they're talking about. Um, so if you get like contradictions in the Bible, this is where a lot of them occur. Um, one person says one person was there one person says two people were there um, they can't seem to remember exactly what was going on and when they're describing Jesus and his body it seems like they've run up against words like they're out of, out of human words to describe it right? And one scholar put what's more remarkable maybe is not that Mark doesn't try to do it but the other gospels even attempts to do it I mean you can tell they've, they've gone into something that they're talking about that they now have no ability to talk about right? this resurrection <coughs> life um, these resurrection appearances um, and the other Gospels can give us perhaps a false sense of, of triumph, of thinking it's over. It's all accomplished. Mark, though, is very clear. No, it's just beginning. What this means is it's not over. We're back on the move. We're back to Galilee. And the question remains for the disciples, will they go to Galilee? Will they go and tell the disciples and Peter? And then for you and I, Will we go to where Jesus has gone ahead of us? I've often theorized one of the reasons we focus so much on the cross and so little on the resurrection 
is because the dead Jesus requires a lot less out of us than a living one does. The Jesus who's dead and sacrificed on our behalf is the Jesus we don't have to answer to. But Jesus who's alive today and has certain desires for our lives as Christians and has certain things he wants accomplished in the world is a Jesus who we have far more responsibility to. And the world we live in is not a world that's very neat and tidy, that's without tragedy and sorrow. It's a world that often leaves us fearful and confused, like the women. And it's a world where often we only know the next step. We don't know the master plan. We don't know how everything's going to end up perfect. All we know is Galilee. Go to Galilee. And perhaps this is a model of faith and of following Christ that Mark wants to leave us with. For you and I as Christians to try to discern where has Jesus gone ahead of us? And are we going to meet him there? Will we follow him there? Will we tell others about the story? Not will we sit back and congratulate ourselves on the resurrection and kick up our feet. But instead, will we scramble a little bit and go, oh, this is still going. Movement's still on. Jesus is alive. He's kicking. He's out there. He's moving. And so we need to run through the discernment process of understanding what he's doing, where he's going, what he's calling of us. We've got these tragic events in Paris and Kenya and other places. And, and they, I think, rightfully um, invoke fear and confusion in people. As Christians, though, if you let fear and confusion have the last word, you get mixed up as a Christian, right? You start saying things that aren't Christian. I've been watching Facebook. It's happening. Um, But but for Christians who've watched death be defeated, like a play toy, Paul will say, right? He just throws it around like a rag doll. We see the sting taken out of death, right? Like that can no longer be a threat against us. We're going to kill you. Oh, oh that's really sad. <laughs> this, this defeated enemy. Um, right? Tragedy, <clears throat> sorrow, those, those things should not drive us into a state of fear and confusion where we become disobedient. <clears throat> While we might be in fear and confusion, it should drive us into a state of fear and confusion where we look for where Christ is. Where'd he go? Is he in Galilee? Seen Sugarland? Seen this relationship? See down the street here? Am I going to meet him there? Am I going to keep following him? Am I going to take that one step today, and that one step on Monday, and that one step on Tuesday, and that one step on Wednesday? Yeah, the world's full of suffering and sorrow, and Jesus' resurrection. If we're to read Mark's gospel correctly, I believe, is not supposed to make us pretend. Um, that it's not, or expect that it's not. Instead, we would recognize, yeah, things like Paris and things like um, Kenya and things like cancer and things like relational relational breaks and, and hurts, those things happen. Um, but it doesn't mean the movement's over. And our response to that, even in fear and even in confusion, is to go, where's Christ gone? How will we meet him there? The story ends with a question, and it's a question that can only be answered by you and I. We go and tell people, 
we go meet Jesus. We go follow him and realize that the one who was crucified is still alive and he's still on the move. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for um, our time this morning. Uh, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I thank you for the Gospel of Mark and for um, the unique ending we get in Mark. Uh, pray.